right? So um, you may recall in Numbers 13 and 14, as we looked at last week, uh, the, uh, the Israelites have uh, they've come out of Egypt. They've been out for a year and a half, give or take, right? So they, uh, they spent a year, uh, which we see in the book of Leviticus, at the foot of Mount Sinai with God giving them the law. God's uh, teaching them what he expects from them as a reflection of his character that they should be holy because they belong to him and he is holy. So he has called Israel as his light to the nations to be separate from the world, to not be like the nations around them. And there's all sorts of distortions that people may put on that, but that's what the book of Leviticus is about. God calling his people to be holy, to be separate from the world. Now we get to numbers. They've, they've received the law. God now orders them uh, around his presence. So he organizes them. He takes the census to prepare them for war. They're, they're getting ready to march into the promised land and have this, um, this inevitable conquest. So he's, he's prepared them for it. They know it's coming. <laughs> now they get there and they don't want it. They've been, everything, everything about their existence has been pointing them to this blessing from God, this inheritance that he promised all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 12. So they come through 400 years in Egypt. They uh, are delivered by God's mighty hand through miraculous signs. And he takes them out of Egypt, the mightiest nation known to man at the time. This, this is the superpower. And he delivers them. And he does it in a demonstrable way so that as you see uh, God's power unfold, there can be no question that it's not Israel doing it. It's God. Now he's got them set up. He takes them uh, to, the, to the precipice of this promise being fulfilled. And Moses sends 12 spies into the promised land, into this land of Canaan, to check it out. Deuteronomy chapter 1 tells us that the people, in their fear, in their nervousness, they were clamoring for him to send spies, and God says, okay, send the spies. So we pick up just after that in verse 25. <clears throat> Uh, really 26, but we'll pick up with 25. This is Numbers 13, starting with verse 25. At the end of 40 days, they, the spies, returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here's its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. 
And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, as we explore your word together today, we recognize that what you have revealed to us in the scriptures is yours. It's your word. It's not ours. We dare not try to make it say what we want it to say. But we need to discover what you have revealed to us and for us that your name might be praised and made great among the nations. Father, you have told us that your word is sufficient for our lives. It is everything that we need for life, for faith. Everything we need to know about how to have a relationship with you, you've given us in your word. And it is useful for instruction, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Oh Lord, we love your word. Help us to love it more. And now Lord, make your word speak to us. Transform us by it. We pray this in the name of your son Jesus. Amen. So as we looked at the whole picture of uh, of this uh, scene that we see in chapters 13 and 14. They get there. They send the scouts into the land to do the recon. They come back to get the report. They're scared of what they find, even though it's everything and more that they had ever hoped for. God has his promise ready to fulfill but, you know, there's giants. And so I'm sure God can't handle giants, right? And so we see them give this bad report. The people freak out. And Caleb and, and Joshua are the only two of the 12. Remember, you know, 10 were bad and two were good. If you learned that song when you were a kid. And now they get there and they actually reject God's blessing. We saw last week in our core reality that when we uh, trust in ourselves instead of the Lord, we receive his wrath instead of his blessing. And that's what the entire story of Numbers is. The children of Israel, God's covenant people, are to receive his promises and he's about to deliver. He shows them, here it is, right? He's letting them see their Christmas present before Christmas, right? They, they get a peek at it. He says, all you have to do now is unwrap it. Let's go in. I'm going to take care of the work. I'm going to give you what I've been longing to give you straight along. I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to keep my promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the people say, uh, no. We want to go back to Egypt. We've had enough. 
That's the story of the rest of the book. Moses intercedes for them as we saw last week and, and uh, the Lord uh, has mercy on them, but he holds the wicked accountable. And so their wicked unbelief is punished as that generation will spend uh, the rest of their lives, literally, wandering around the wilderness. Forty years, corresponding to the 40 days they spied out the land, God will keep them in the wilderness until that entire generation is passed, and then he will complete the promise that he made and bring their children into the promised land. It's the core reality of the entire book of Numbers that our unfaithful choices have consequences, but the Lord remains faithful to his promises. Today, we want to kind of drill down on the idea that, that we see in the story, that God had good things, not, not good possibilities. Some of you are old enough to remember a, a popular movement among Christian circles about possibility thinking, right? Uh, and, and the be happy attitudes and things like this, that, that God gives you an opportunity to do good things. God gives you an opportunity to have your best life now. All these types of things. But God is showing them that it's not a possibility. I've already done it. It's here. All you have to do is trust me. I just want to bless you. But they can't receive it because they're too busy focusing on their own efforts. We're not good enough. We can't do this. Caleb says, let's go. We can certainly accomplish this. Oh, no way. They're too strong. We're not good enough. And they strive and they fail because their striving rather than their resting is actually rejecting God. What they're really saying is, Lord, we trust our understanding, our perception, more than we trust your promise. More than we trust your covenant. If you've been with us on this journey, you might remember back in number 6. At the end of number 6, we see uh, God tell the priests to pray this prayer, to give this blessing to the people. And in so doing, they will put God's name on the people. They'll, they'll stamp God's ownership on them, much like Andy wrote his name on the foot of his toys in Toy Story. You are mine. Bless my people this way so that they will know and those who know them will know that they are mine. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you. This is a a picture of intimate relationship, and give you peace. This is what God is reminding them of whenever they gather and the priests pray this blessing over them. You are mine, my covenant people, and I do the blessing, and I do the keeping, and you will know me as my glorious grace shines on you, and you will have peace because I will give you peace. Most importantly, you will have peace with me as I turn my face toward you. I am for you. I am with you. 
Nothing can touch you without my permission because you are the apple of my eye. You know, it's not just the theme of numbers. This is going to be the theme throughout the rest of the Old Testament as God continues to pour out his love on Israel and Israel continues to say, um, but uh, we really want to be like everybody else. Uh, we're really not sure that we trust your promises. Or we want to do our own thing and then earn our relationship with you by checking off the box of religious ritual. We, we want to make the sacrifices. We want to give the gifts. We want to sing the songs and do the things and have the priest intercede. But we still want to live however we want to live. And God has to deal with that over and over again to make sure they understand that the blood of bulls and goats can never buy God's favor. It's all grace. It's always been all grace. Before we get into this, I want to draw your attention. We'll, we'll come back to, to numbers to get to the points here, but I want to draw your attention to what God says to his people in Psalm 23. You can turn there so that you can see it. I suspect that most, maybe even all of us, have it memorized from a variety of settings. Uh, most likely you've heard it or recited it at funerals. Maybe you learned it growing up as a child. If you're like me, when you say it from memory, it comes out in the King James, right? But I'm going to read it to you from uh, the 84 edition of the NIV, which we all know is Heaven's Preferred Translation. And as we do this, I want you to pretend that you have not heard it before. Don't just fall into the rhythm, but let your mind go into what David is saying. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is a picture of relationship. This is a picture of not of a shepherd. He's using a shepherd metaphor, a shepherd illustration, but it's David describing his relationship with his heavenly father. And as the head of the nation, as the king, he represents the people before God in a priestly way. He's not the priest, but he has a role of priest as the king of Israel. And he has a role of prophet in representing God to the people, even though he's not the prophet. And David is saying, this relationship 
is one of a God, a father, a shepherd who cares so deeply for me and is so committed to my well-being, my welfare, that even in the valley of shadow of death, I might be surrounded by evil. I might be scared to death, and yet I will not fear. Oh, I'm still afraid, and yet I'm not afraid. I choose to trust in him because my shepherd walks with me with his rod and his staff to guide me, to keep me on the right path, to protect me from predators. Anything that would harm me has to go through my God. Therefore, I can sit right in front of my enemies at a banquet table, a victory celebration while they watch because my God is doing it. And I will dwell in his house forever as his love and compassion pursues me. What's that a picture of? It's not a shepherd anymore. You ain't bring no sheep in the house. If you are, your wife is going to really be upset, brother, so just you know, be, be sharp. Who dwells in your house? It's your children. I'm going to dwell in my father's house because I'm his child. And doesn't your love, doesn't your goodness pursue, follow, chase after your children even when they're dumb? Say amen if you have kids and you know kids are dumb sometimes. Say amen if you've ever been a kid and you know that you've been dumb. You better get a. If you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch, right? Here's the thing. This picture that David is giving us in Psalm 23 is a picture of someone who knows, who knows the character of God and therefore is able to rest in the covenant relationship that they have with that God. God said, I am His. I am my beloved's and he is mine. And as the song says, his banner over me is love. He has claimed me. He has put his name on me and nothing can touch me. He wants to do good things. Now, we've so often distorted this picture into this so-called prosperity gospel, which is not gospel at all. It's no good news. This idea that God gives all these special gifts to those who have the right kind of faith. And in the end, it ultimately portrays God as stingy with his gifts. But God is a good, good father, is he not? And God only gives good gifts. And we see in the book of James, chapter 1, that every good and perfect gift comes from above. If it's good, if it's right, if it's pure, if it's true, it comes from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like the shadows shift as the day moves on, that's not God. He's steadfast, immovable. This God of ours, when he says it, it is so. He's a promise keeper. Therefore, he tells us in Matthew 6, stop stressing about all the stuff of life. He doesn't say the stresses of life are going to go away. He says, just don't do it. 
Don't worry. Oh, well, that's easy. Sure. The point is not that worry won't come. It's that I won't let it dominate me. I won't let it rule me. I won't let it stay because my shepherd, my father is here and he has it under control. And my heart might constantly be saying, but, but what if, but I don't, God, I don't know about this. There's giants in the land. Faith says, yeah, I see it. And in myself, I'm petrified. But my God causes me to come to these green pastures and lie down. He brings me to the quiet waters where he restores my soul. He prepares a victory banquet right in front of those giants. Bring it on. I might be scared to death. Faith saddles up anyway. Back to Numbers 13. As we look at this portion of the story, we know how it begins, we know how it ends. We're going to see a difference between the rest of the spies who come and say, Moses, it's everything that we hoped it would be and more. Check out the fruit we brought back. This grape cluster is so big, we got to carry it on a pole between two people. It's so big, we're going to name the valley after it. We're going we're to call it the valley of the cluster because that's how incredible this is. Uh, but we got to say no. we got to tell God, thanks but no thanks. Um, did you get a gift receipt so we can you know, take this back and exchange it? Because uh, we want to go back to the slavery. We were better off there. As we know, when God gives us what we want, that's often not blessing but judgment. They get what they want. You're afraid that your children will become a prey. Well, your children will be protected. And you would have been, but you wanted to go back. So let's go take a lap. Or how about 40 years worth of laps? Until you die. And then I'll do what I was going to do anyway. As I mentioned last week, chapter 15 should be the book of Joshua. But it's not. Instead of going in to take the land and seeing conquest after conquest as they push out the pagan wicked nations and establish the kingdom that God had promised with God ruling directly over them, instead, that generation has to pass. Then they do it again. And they get there. But for today, I want to focus not so much on the judgment, on the wrath, but on what they're missing out on. Because they were too busy stressing about things that God had already promised to handle. You could understand it, couldn't you, if God hadn't promised to give this to them. If God said, I'm going to bring you to this promised land, and then it's up to you what you do with it, right? I'm going to bring you here. I'm going to show it to you like a realtor showing a house, and then you make a choice. You get to decide, have we prepared enough? Have we gotten ourselves in a position where we can go to battle against these armies who are very experienced, and a year ago we were slaves, so we don't really know that much about battle, but are we ready for that? Or should we not do it? If that were the case, it would make sense, wouldn't it? We could understand. 
But when God says, I'm bringing you here, and I'm going to put you in a land flowing with milk and honey that is filled with cities you didn't build, fortified, walled cities that you didn't build, houses that you didn't put up, vineyards and fields that you didn't plant, you didn't tend, but you're going to get to harvest. I'm going to do this for you. And he's already said, I will drive out the nations before you. I will bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. It's not new. He said it to Abraham. And he's been reiterating that promise throughout the generations. And they act as if God had never said anything. Here's my concern for us. Don't we do the same thing? Don't we ignore God's promises? We like to claim them when it's convenient, especially if there's no requirement. We were talking yesterday about the reality. that We like to, we like to talk about the unconditional love of God, which, by the way, is not a biblical concept. Take a look at it. God's got lots of conditions. Number one condition is surrender. But we like to talk about God with unconditional love. He, he loves, he blesses, and then that's it. We don't want to talk about sin, judgment, holiness, wrath. Let's get our, our Thomas Jefferson scissors out and we'll cut out those parts of the Bible. Because right? that's inconvenient for us. Caleb says, really? God brought us here. God's doing everything he said he was going to do, right? How cool is that? Let's go. No, 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 Caleb, shut up, man. We can't do that. They're too strong. Later on, Caleb will, will, will shut it all down and say, listen, he and Joshua tear their clothes, and they say, listen, God will do this. It was never about our strength anyway. God will do it. All you have to do, just like he said to him back in Exodus, is be still. Wait on God. He'll fight for you. You can't lose. How awesome would it be to go into a football game and know that no matter what happens, you already win. I can't, as a Bears fan, I can't really, you know, I don't know. Back in 85, I knew a little bit more what that felt like, and then Miami kicked me in the teeth. But three of you actually care about what I just said. So when we get to this story, what's it going to do for us? How are we going to take this to ourselves? Our core reality today, as we look at this particular section, is that, when we, uh, <clears throat> uh, that we will not receive God's blessing without resting in his care. We will not receive God's blessing without resting in his care. And, and there is the judgment aspect that we talked about last week, and that's valid, right? If, if unbelief is wicked idolatry, ultimately. It's, it's trusting myself, my perception, my feelings, my wisdom, uh, more than I'm trusting God's promises. So uh, I'm not looking at God, I'm looking at me. And, and you're saying, well, I, I don't feel confident at all. They don't seem to be confident. That's exactly the point. Because I'm trusting my ability, which means that I'm failing in, because of my inability, I, I don't have that confidence. It's still pride. It's still looking at me and what I can do and what I understand or don't understand. 
my weakness, my unrighteousness. I'm not good enough. And don't we do that in our relationship with the Lord too? He tells us what to do. He tells us what to believe. He makes promises to us and we think that somehow it's about us. That somehow I have to work and strive and perform and impress God. And if not, when I blow it, raise your hand if you've never blown it. Anybody? When I blow it, then God removes his favor from me. I probably lost my salvation. I'm going to have to start over. And I have to make up for it. I have to do penance in some way. Now, maybe you don't use that term unless you're from particular backgrounds, but, but that's the idea. I messed up, so I'm going to be extra good today, right? Maybe you can remember when you were a kid and, and Christmas was approaching, and you know Santa is watching, right? Because dude's always watching. Nothing creepy about that at all. And, and, and as Santa is watching and you mess up, Sorry about Santa. But anyway, and you mess up. Oh, no. I, I, I blew it. I better be extra good. I'm going to go do extra chores. I want to try to make up for it. Brothers and sisters, you might fool Santa Claus, but the Lord knows your heart. There's no making up for sin. You might be able to make up for certain consequences in a temporal sense. You might be able to pay back uh, you know, the, the store window you you break, you crash your car into, right? You can do that. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a holy God. All right, let's actually get to the, the parts that you need to mark down. Notice this as we walk through it, okay? And remember, our governing principle here, our core reality, uh, we will not receive God's blessings without resting in his care. Mark this down. The Lord demands trust, but he does not ask for blind faith. The Lord demands trust, but he does not ask for blind faith. At the beginning of chapter 13, the Lord said to Moses, Send some men in, uh, to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. Now, uh, again, uh, authority and submission is crucial in, in God's kingdom, in the created order. Uh, we have this built into everything. Headship matters. So when God says these are representatives, these are the, our chiefs among them, they are going as scouts representing the people. We learn in Deuteronomy 1 that it's because of the people's fear that they want scouts sent in. And God doesn't seem in this case to judge them for that fear, but what he does say is go ahead and do it. Send them in. Moses gives them instructions. Go check it out. See the city. See the people. See the fruit. Bring back the report. Bring back some of its produce if you're able to do that. Right. So they do all that. God has given them a picture of what he's about to do. Mark this down. The Lord demands trust, but he does, but he does not ask for blind faith. That should, it looks like there's a typo in your program. I don't know. Who writes these things? Oh, wait. Never mind. The Lord demands trust, but he does not, I would even capitalize that since you have to fill it in, he does not ask for blind faith, never has, never will. Mark this part down. God gives reasons to believe through patterns of the past and foretastes of the future. God gives reasons to believe through patterns of the past and foretastes of the future. 
We are not taking a blind leap of faith. No, instead what we are doing is we are building faith on the evidence of what God has done. We have his word to show us how he has faithfully dealt with his people from the beginning until this day. He has shown us the patterns of the past as he protects his covenant people and he looks to bless them and he gives them blessings they don't deserve. And he calls them to be faithful, to put the trust and their hope in him and in him alone. And they struggle to do that. But even in their unfaithful choices, God remains faithful. And he keeps his promises always. You can take it to the bank. How do I know? Look at everything he's ever promised in the past. Follow the patterns. Look at what he did in the history of Israel. Read the Old Testament and it shows you. How do I know that he'll do it in the future? Look at the New Testament. And in the Gospels, we see a picture of Jesus doing all of the things that are promised in heaven in the new world to come at the end of time. The Messiah came and we don't have perfect shalom. We don't have perfect harmony yet, do we? You probably notice that as you watch the news. There might be, every once in a while, a negative story that comes out. But Jesus, having not set all things right yet, settled the issue of sin and showed a picture of what will come in the final day. When he healed the sick, and in that day there will be no more sickness. When he raised the dead, we have life in him. He is the resurrection and the life, and there will be a resurrection of all of us. To life for those whose name are written, names are written in the book and to judgment and condemnation for those who are not. He gives us foretastes of the future. And we see that here. He's delivered them from Egypt. They've already seen God's mighty hand in, in just absolutely mind-boggling displays of power. If you are a year and a half out and you forgot, uh, just I'm sorry, just slipped my mind, how God split the Red Sea, took you through on dry land, and drowned the world's most powerful army behind you. It, it, you just forgot. Because, you know, there's giants. I sure wish this didn't remind me so much of myself. The Lord demands our trust, but He doesn't ask for blind faith. No, not ever. He gives reasons to believe through the patterns of the past and through the foretastes of the future. They get here and he shows them, look, here's what is in store. I made the promise. You can actually see it. You're looking at the product here. All you have to do is trust me and I'll give you all of this. And they don't. Mark this down in the next point. God's plans are bigger and better than expected. God's plans are bigger and better than expected. When they got there, this was everything God promised, but you know, there's no way that they were going to imagine what they encountered. When they got here, 
there's no way they're thinking we better, you know, take a, a cart or an extra polar with us, something, uh, uh, you know, something to, to be able to bring back a, a giant cluster of grapes that's so big it's going to take two people to carry it. I don't know about you, but I can carry four or five, you know, things of grapes home from the grocery store with a bunch of clusters, you know. I can do all that. No, no problem. Imagine going to the grocery store. You get to the, to the Harding's produce section or the Meyer produce section uh, or the new Aldi that's going in or whatever. So uh, you, you get there, and you're going to bring the produce home, and you say, um, honey, we got a problem. Uh, you said to get a cluster of grapes, but I didn't bring the truck, uh, and I can't fit it in the car because it's too big. Right? That's what's happening here. They get there, they see it, and... Moses, it really is flowing with milk and honey, metaphorically speaking. This is a land that is rich and abundant and is producing fruit. When they said the land devours its inhabitants, they meant that to be a critical thing that you should be afraid of. But it really does in that its abundant provision is so much bigger even than the giants that live there that this is the picture you have. God's giving them more than they even were picturing in their mind. Uh, turn, if you would, to Ephesians 3. We were in Ephesians 1 earlier um, as I was reading from Ephesians 1 about our relationship. At the end of Ephesians 3, I want you to see how Paul sort of explodes. He does this in Romans as well. Paul has a tendency to just kind of burst out into a doxology of worship when he contemplates and shares in his letters the greatness and the glory of our God and his grace toward us. So in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, he's, he's giving this um, description of all the blessings we have in Christ, the identity we have in him, what he has done for us. And you get to the end of chapter 3. He's about to, to move from talking about our identity to the, the, the um, prescriptive part where uh, you put flesh on it. And after he's talking about how he's praying for the Ephesians that, that they might uh, have power together with all the saints to grasp how high and how, how wide and how long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And he gets to, to, to verses 20 and 21 of chapter 3. And, and, and it's so ready to spill out and overflow from him that he kind of explodes into this doxology at the end. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And then Paul says, let's get to work on living like that. That's the God that has them at the door of the promised land. God who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. And you look at it and you're like, man, how could they doubt him? We need to look at the mirror and say, man, how could we doubt him? Why is it that we're so overwhelmed by our circumstances? I get it. You're overwhelmed by your circumstances. Me too. It happens. Doesn't it just sound dumb on the face of it? I'm a child of God. 
My shepherd walks with me through the valley of the shadow of death. He, he prepares a table before me in the presence of whatever enemy is out there. Whatever giants are in my way between me and God's blessing, that's his deal. It's not my job. It's not your job to worry about how you're going to get over. It's not your job to worry about how you are going to stay in God's good graces, if you will, and make it to heaven. Paul said in Philippians 1.6, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, it's really not about you trying to maintain this. All you have to do is trust. Dwell in his house. He's your daddy. He's not going to let you fall. He's not going to give you bad gifts. That's what Jesus says in Matthew. Which one of you, if you love your children, and I know that you do, and they ask you for bread, you're going to give them a rock. What kind of parent is that? Even knuckleheaded parents don't do that. They're hungry, they want you to give them a fish, and, and, and you bring them a viper instead. What kind of parent does that? And, and, and those who are hearing Jesus say that would be like, well, of course not. That's, that's insane. And Jesus says, now if you, being evil, being sinful people, are able to give good gifts like that to, to your kids, what do you think God's going to do? You think God's going to give less perfect gifts than you? No. He only gives good gifts. He's the giver of perfect gifts. He's a good father. And if you seek first his kingdom, he'll take care of the rest. You know, sometimes we'll think, well, if I just do my best, God will make up the difference. Man, your best has nothing to do with it. Your best? My best? Really? Isaiah was right when he says, like filthy rags. My best efforts are always tainted. My motives are polluted even when I think it's doing my best. I almost am never doing my best, even when I think I am. No, it has nothing to do with that. God's the author. He is the one who puts it together. Jesus Christ is the author and the finisher of our faith. If you're in him, it certainly is not because you're striving. It's not because you're doing good enough, well enough, right enough. You're not, and you never will. That's the whole reason the law was given was so that we see that. And if you think that God is going to fail to give good gifts, then you need to read the book more to see who he is. Mark this down. The Lord keeps his promises, and his blessings are perfect. Perfect. The Lord keeps his promises, and his blessings are perfect. That means they are complete. It might not be what you wanted, but it is more than you could have ever dreamed. It might not be what you ordered, what you thought in your limited mind would be the right answer, but when God gives you a gift, it is all the way through good. Top to bottom, side to side, east to west, from the heavens to the grave, it is good, complete, perfect and when God promises God delivers God's a promise keeper 
You can stand on those things. You can put weight on it. You can rest in his care. Next point. Faith receives the blessings fear rejects. Faith receives the blessings fear rejects. I want to make sure I clarify this because I fear that we might... fear. I'm concerned that we might misunderstand. It's not that faith is rewarded with blessings. You know, if I, if, I, if I muster up my faith, then God sees that. All that's doing is taking the concept of faith and essentially making it a, a work, a good deed that's earning something. Right? I'm getting a wage for it rather than a gift. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is putting my hope, my confidence in what I know to be true even when everything around me screams that it's not true. Right? I, I adore my wife. We've been married for a, a minute now. And, and, and throughout these years, it has been a joy and bliss to be married to her. But not every moment of it. <laughs> this might surprise you if, if you're single. It won't surprise you if you're married. Along the way, we've had some fights. And I've learned that they're all my fault. But they're, the, the <laughs> and this is where I get the amen from my wife. Uh, but resting in this relationship means that when the feelings of the moment scream that there is no hope, she doesn't even love me anymore. I've blown it too bad. No. Shut that garbage down because I know in my knower that she's a stayer. She made a promise and she keeps it. Even when I make it hard. So I rest in that. I can, in a positive sense, take her for granted. That doesn't mean neglect her. But I know that no matter what, no matter what this world brings, she's constant. Now, my wife is pretty cool, but she's not God. If she is that, how much more so is our infinite, thrice holy, perfect, omnipotent God? When he says it, he does it. And I can rest in that relationship. When he brings us into covenant with himself when we are united to Jesus Christ nothing can separate us from the love of God nothing period it doesn't matter what giants are there faith receives the blessings that fear rejects they see the giants and they reject what God is about to give them a land flowing with milk and honey Fortified cities that are about to be theirs. Beautiful homes about to be theirs. Farms that are, that are just overflowing with abundant production that they didn't do any work for. About to be theirs. And fear says, I, I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think I can. I, I can't do it. I can't do it. Dude, you were never supposed to do it. God didn't promise that if you're strong enough, he'll give it to you. He promised, I'll give it to you because this is the covenant relationship we have. Faith says, I see the giants. 
they scare the pants off me. But I'm just going to put my pants back on and go do this. Because God said it. So I don't have to understand it. I don't have to see how it turns out. I just know that God said it. Therefore, I'm going to trust it. That's faith. Faith is a doing thing, not a feeling thing. Fear is a feeling thing. If we let it become a doing thing, then basically we've allowed fear to become the idol we bow down to. Faith says, no chance. I'm going to follow the promise keeper. Mark this down. Faith chooses to rest in God's character, covenant, and commitment. Faith chooses to rest in God's character, covenant, and commitment. Remember that the Lord demands our trust, but he, he doesn't ask us for blind faith. He's already given us reasons to believe in him, to trust the relationship through the patterns of the past and the foretastes of the future. Therefore, I can look at his promises and say, I already know the character of God. I used my wife as an example already. I'm going to steal it and do it again. The reason I can trust that is because I know her character. You could come to me and say, Shelly did this, or she betrayed you, or she's running around with some dude, and I, I might punch you in the nose, but I probably won't. I'll probably just laugh at you. Because, come on, if you know her, you know better. It's not her character. You can say a lot of things. You, you know, <laughs> you can say, you know, she hurt your feelings or whatever else. Okay, maybe, sure, whatever. Get over it. <laughs> no, just kidding. I'm oh, sorry. Just playing. But... But when you tell me something that's contrary to her character, I don't even have to entertain it. Why do we do the opposite with God? He's demonstrated his character to us. Throughout the patterns of the past, he's shown us the kind of God he is. We see how he longs to give mercy. He loves to bless his children. He's faithful to his covenant, even when his covenant people are unfaithful to him. So why would I trust my wife more than I trust God? It makes no sense. And yet we do it constantly. Faith recognizes that God's character is unimpeachable. His covenant relationship with us is a promise that he is committed to and he keeps. So when God says, you are mine, I am always his and nothing can take me out of his hand. Not even me. I am so often my worst enemy. Can anybody amen that? Have you ever found yourself to be your worst enemy? The biggest obstacle to living for Christ is the guy in the mirror. My biggest enemy is me, and even I can't stop me. Because God's doing it, not me. So I trust the covenant. And when God says, this is what I do for the people in my covenant... I can trust his commitment. When God says, I'm going to finish what I started, I'm going to make you like Christ. By the time you get done with this life, by the time Jesus returns, you will be perfectly conformed to the image of Christ because you are in a covenant relationship with him. You can take it to the bank. You can rest in his care. Next point. Trusting our feelings more than our Father causes us to fight against His good plans. Trusting our feelings more than our Father 
causes us to fight against his good plans. We see Caleb in this story, the picture of faith receiving the blessing that fear rejects. And, and we see in chapter 14, Caleb and Joshua, Caleb's the spokesperson here, so he's the one that gets mentioned, but, but Caleb and Joshua, because of their faith, because not because they were better, braver warriors, but because they saw the promises of God, and so the giants did not matter to them. The might of the adversary became irrelevant in the face of the glorious power, presence, and care of God. So Caleb is saying, yeah, we can do this. We're ready to receive the blessings. And eventually they do because they survive the generation that dies in the wilderness. The reason that we are able to see that is because they had the same feelings and they trusted in the Father more. But notice what happens after that. So uh, in 13, after, uh, after Caleb uh, makes his little speech in verse 30, we should go up and take possession of the land. We can certainly do it. Notice what happens in 31. The men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they explored. In other words, they had to lie to do this. They had to come in and say, No, we're going to actually campaign against God. Caleb, shut up. That's enough. We've heard enough out of you. Stop telling us that we can do this. We're going to go convince all the people. We're going to spread the propaganda that, man, you don't want any part of this. And they stir up the people against God. You know, that's what happens when we trust our feelings more than we trust our Father. We find ourselves fighting against God's good plans for us because the plans seem hard. My life fell apart, turned on a dime. I don't know how I'm going to survive. I don't know how I'm going to get through it. I have to live alone. I have to deal with a debilitating illness. My, I lost my job. I lost my reputation. I sinned. Whatever it is, it seems bigger than God's able to handle. But he's given us his promise that he will bring us through it and that he will use it for our good, ultimately, and His glory. But if we trust the feelings more than Him, we're never going to get to that place where we can receive it, where we can understand it. Don't misunderstand. God's still going to do what God's still going to do. I can either be on board with it or not. I can spend my life fretting and stressing and striving, or I can choose, yes, choose to rest in Him. There is a labor about resting. There is a, if we're going to strive, that's the thing to strive for, to strive to rest in Him. So what the writer of Hebrews tells us in the Sabbath rest for God's people, strive to be a part of the rest, to recognize who He is and how He treats His people and relax in Him. Every time we see that, do not be afraid, that's what it's saying. It's not saying don't feel feelings of fear. You don't control what you feel. You control what you do about what you feel. You control whether or not that fear, those feelings, will drive you down. Trusting our feelings 
more than our Father, causes us to fight against His good plans. Notice this. Passive unbelief leads to active rejection, resistance, and rebellion. This is the the growth pattern of our unbelief. Passive unbelief leads to active rejection, resistance, and rebellion. We saw last week that uh, fear is habit-forming, and so is trusting God. When I get used to it, it becomes a stronghold. Strongholds become hard to tear down. Not impossible. God will do it. But we have to then learn hard lessons about what it means to cast our anxiety on Him because He cares for us. That's the struggle. I'm going to have you turn to one last scripture as we wrap this up. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We're going to go to the end of it. I hope this is a very familiar passage. I hope the moment I said Romans 8, you knew exactly where we're going with it. Before I read this passage, I just want to kind of frame this idea for us. How does this passage that we've been reading in Numbers point us to Christ? Jesus Christ is our covenant relationship with God. He's our covenant relationship with God, received by faith. We need to choose to rest in Him. Once we have come to Him, He is the one who has done the work. God has given us Christ, and He has in Christ given us a perfect provision, bigger and better than we expected. His promise is kept in Jesus. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. And the blessing we receive in Him is perfect. As Jesus walked the earth, He gave us a foretaste of the glory that is to come. We get a glimpse into the promised land. It only makes sense for us to strengthen our faith by knowing that God delivers and getting a glimpse of it. Rather than focusing on the giants around us, let us rest in the care of our God. Through Jesus, we enter into a new and lasting covenant with God. We are God's beloved children in Christ, fully adopted, not because of anything in us or anything we do, but because of the external work of Christ, not subjective to our feelings, trusting in what He has done and what He has promised. What do I need to do in light of this truth? I need to stop striving. I need to trust Christ. Maybe that's new for you and you're not in a relationship. Maybe it's old for you. Maybe you've been there, but you've forgotten. Or you've got strongholds of fear you need to tear down. Trust the work He did on the cross. Trust the promises of God. Trust His character, His covenant, His commitment. He's a promise keeper. He never fails so we can rest in the security of His loving care and stand on His promises toward His people. Now let's read as we close this message with uh, Romans 8, starting with verse 28. (laughs) 
just a little side note as I chuckle. This is another picture, once again, of Paul contemplating the, imma- the immense glory of God and bursting into worship in the midst of it. He writes to the Roman church, and the Lord, by His Spirit, speaks to us to say, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who've been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. Paul says this past tense because that's the certainty of God's promises when he says it it's as if it's already history what then shall we say in response to this if God is for us who shall be against us he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all remember Romans 5 8 while we were yet sinners Christ died for us that's the kind of love God has for us He didn't spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is He that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, insert here, or giants? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, facing death, all these difficulties, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can rest in His care. And that's a promise. Let's pray. Father God, as we sing this final song together, I pray that you would use it to drive deep into our hearts the reality that we are not going to receive your blessings unless we rest in your care. We've got to let go of the plans that we have for ourselves and trust your plans. We need to let go of our striving to be better and trust your grace to put our hope not in our ability to maintain a holy life but to put our trust, our hope in your ability to preserve us and therefore we desire to live a holy life of gratitude for you. Now Lord, Bless us. Keep us. Make your face shine on us. Be gracious to us. Turn your face toward us 
as your beloved children united to Christ. And give us the shalom that you have in store for your covenant people. Teach us to stand on your promises, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.